It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. All right, recording to the cloud. Good. All right, Mitch, we'll fire away. Okay, so yeah, let's let's start out with my first question here. So this is, it's more of, and some of these things that I'm going to ask are maybe less questions and more of just like, hey, what's your opinion on this? Okay. So the first topic I just wanted to kind of bring up was this idea, and I know this is talked about quite often, but this juxtaposition in a lot of the yogic uh, literature and even just in teachings and conversations about the idea of control versus letting go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of what I read and what I've heard is like, okay, you need to, you need to control like everything. You need to control your senses and your mind and your plans and your actions and your impulses. And, but then, you know, equivocally, there's all of this content of an idea of, but you should let go. You should let, you know, let things just unfold and not be attached to any outcome. And so I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on this distinction between control and also letting go and, and maybe a little bit, if it makes sense of where discipline fits in with that and the concept of discipline and right. whether that's, you know, how that differs or is the same to control. Right. Well, that's a, that's a very good question. And being uh, a yogi who for the first part of my um, time practicing yoga and meditation, really listening to uh, Mr. Davis, Roy Davis, and considering what he had to say, um, I understand this need to, in a sense, control things because Mr. Davis was very much of the mindset that our life should be orderly and we should have routine mm-hmm. and things. You should be able to be a, a, a forward or uh, an optimist and, and someone who, who looks to the future with, with plans and um, moves towards those plans. And I, I was very much into that and I understood what he was saying, but um, you know, eventually life caught up with me <laughs> and there were certain mm-hmm. things certain things that occurred that um, I could not control no matter what, like it was completely beyond future planning, being optimistic and these sorts of things. So I've thought about this a lot and essentially it kind of boils down to this. Um, You know, if you have a well-organized life and if you're taking care of yourself, you are more likely to miss a lot of the problems that someone who is thoughtless or careless or isn't really being conscious of how they're living their life. And that doesn't mean you're going to miss all of the problems, but it means, you know, if, for example, you understand that you need to control yourself so that you don't drink a whole bunch of alcohol and then go driving, well, if you understand that, then you're less likely to be in an accident and kill someone or get a DUI. Um, you still may be in an accident, but an individual who doesn't seem to think about that at all and doesn't control their alcohol consumption when they drive, then they're more likely to experience something like an accident or a DUI or, or something of that nature. 
Um, in the Bhagavad Gita and in many yogic texts, there is this emphasis towards non-attachment. In fact, if you really read many of these texts over and over again, what you see is the statement that the yogi is meant to do essentially whatever work is put before one and to do it as well as one can. And so one needs to, to be able to, in a sense, train oneself or figure out what does it take to do something well, such as meditating well. But at the end, it goes on to say, but you do this without attachment. You do it freely. You do it of its own accord, not because you want to get something out of it. And the reason this right. is so hard is because the human mind needs reasons for things to be a certain way. And so in the beginning, most of the time, we're going to find that um, individuals need some kind of structure or need some kind of guidance or need some kind of... Um, how would I put it, some kind of uh, path to follow because that, get, that keeps them focused and stable such that they're not getting distracted by everything that comes along and then they're able to internalize their awareness and, and realize why it's so important, why non-attachment is so important. So the difficulty is that, yes, there are many things which we cannot control in life um, there are many things which we can't help, but there are quite a few things which we can help. And so when it comes down to practicing yoga, essentially all we're doing, we're doing the best we can. That's all we can do. We can just do the right. best we can. And the best we can is practicing the yamas and niyamas, conserving our resources, not wasting our time, being truthful, being content. We do all that because it contributes to our greater capacity to know what we really are beyond the mind and the body and the personality. And then once you know what you are beyond the mind, body, and personality, one naturally lets go of the attachment to things going a certain way or to the need to control things. But they also recognize that you know, if we're going to have a, a, an experience in life, it really helps out if we have certain boundaries that we, we follow just to keep things together. Does sure. this make sense? And is this answering your question? I feel like I went on some different yeah. directions there. No, that's perfect. I'm, I'm trying to tee you up to go on different directions. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. No, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think you spoke well to the, not only the idea of control, but also discipline, which I think is a lot of the undercurrent of what you're talking about. Um, right. And then where letting go, you know, comes into play it's uh well right so and it, I, yeah we, we can think about it we can think about it very uh mundanely and we can also think about in these kind of lofty spiritual realms i mean from a mundane standpoint you know if i if i decide that i'm going to get a job and i'm going to save my money as best i can well i am less likely to have financial problems okay however mm -hmm. It may be that I save all my life and, you know, some big financial problem comes up that I just can't handle. However, we don't know if that's going to be the case. But up until that point, most of the time, things are going to be managed well. And when it comes to spirituality, um, you know, we have to control our minds. We have to control our minds because 
you know, I was recently reading um, a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita by Lahiri Mahasaya, and he says, when you go into meditation, you have to make sure that you are giving no, no attention to the idea that something external to you can make you happy. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to discipline yourself to pull within to let go of those ideas that something external to you can make you, un- can make you happy, such as, oh, well, maybe I should stop meditating so I can check my phone. Well, there's an idea that by doing that, that's going to contribute to your happiness. Or maybe I shouldn't be meditating. Maybe I should be doing something else. It's another distraction. However, once you discipline the mind to let go of all of those distractions, well, then you, then you can let go. Because, you know, you've put so much uh, momentum towards pulling within that once you let go, that momentum carries you f- fully inward and you don't have to be pedaling anymore. You don't have to be pushing anymore. It just naturally happens. So in the beginning, yes, one has to work on this idea of discipline until they get it. Again, like being a musician, you can't just pick up a guitar and go play with professional musicians and improvise things. You have to discipline yourself to learn the scales, to play the notes right, to intonate them well, such that when you show up, no one's going to look at you and have that look in their eye like, geez, I wish you'd quit playing. You've done Mm -hmm. the work. You've got the discipline. Now you can fly. Now you actually know what you're doing. So we can look at it on many different levels, but there, there always will be that sense of you learn it, and then you let go. You learn it and you let go. And that's a, that's a consistent process that seems to keep happening. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I think of that even in terms of creativity. Um, you know, about five or six years ago, I quit my job, <laughs> kind of on a whim, honestly, because I was very unhappy in the position at the time. And I thought, well, this is going to be great. I just need to be free and I'm <laughs> going to be so creative and awesome and oh my God, I can write 10 hundred books because I'm going to be, you know, have no obligations or responsibilities. And, you know, what I found during that time of essentially being unemployed was that I had no freedom, no creativity, nothing. And um, I think that when that security goes away, um, Mm -hmm. that you're not really able to let go. And to, so what, to what you're saying, I guess, is you kind of, use a little discipline, use a little control to construct stability. And then within that framework, you let go and just let right. things happen naturally. Yeah. Right. And even with that idea of creativity, you know, when I first thought I was going to be a novelist, uh, I did what I do on all mm-hmm. things. I decided to read about how to write. And I remember uh, a quote, it might have been from Stephen King, but uh, it was essentially that inspiration is for amateurs. <laughs> the inspiration yeah. is for amateurs because the professional, the one who's the serious writer gets up every day and writes for three or four hours or longer, even if they think they're writing total crap, they do mm-hmm. it anyway. Mm-hmm. And, yep. um, and it's the same thing with, with being a successful yogi. If you think you're just going to meditate every time you're inspired or it feels good, just forget it because mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the whole point of the process is learning to go beyond this idea of when you feel good about it or when there's an inspiration there. It's about, no, the self is there all the time and I need to, act, I need to learn to access it in all states, whether I'm happy, sad, neutral, content. We get there no matter what. And when we train ourselves to do that, then eventually it doesn't matter how we are feeling in an external level, we still have the capacity to go meditate and experience it. You know, so the idea of inspiration being for amateurs, that is, that mm-hmm. is true in my mind across the board. Yeah, 
Oh, I love that. I think that's, that's really cool. Uh, that's really smart. <laughs> and I agree with that. Consistency is, right. is key. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think that that sufficiently answers that okay. for me. So thank you very much for elaborating on that. Um, sure. So something else I was wondering is if you might be able to say a few words on this concept of selflessness, um, and how it relates to, you know, either the Kriya path or just sort of spiritual enlightenment in general. Um, I read a lot about selflessness, obviously, and I know uh, Mr. Davis talks or talked a lot about selflessness. And so Mm -hmm. I'd kind of be interested to hear uh, your thoughts on that and and the importance of selflessness and and how that relates and ties in with all this work that we're doing. Right. That's a, that's kind of a charged word in, in some ways because many people can interpret it um, in different ways and, and oftentimes mm-hmm. they might interpret it in ways that it, it wasn't really intended from a yogic perspective. And mm-hmm. you know, from, what, from what I've read in, in Mr. Davis's work, when, when this idea comes up, um, essentially the biggest problem we have is uh, an overinflated sense of self or, or egotism or, yeah, I guess mm-hmm. egotism is a good word. And we have to be very, very, you know, cautious with this idea of selflessness because sometimes we can think we're being selfless when really we're just trying to build up a sense of having other people see that we're selfless. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like individuals who uh, they're bleeding hearts for every situation that comes along, and it's not necessarily because they have an innate urge to be of help to situations and places it's because they want to be seen as selfless or caring or or like a mother Teresa or something of that nature Um, yeah so essentially when it comes to being selfless really the way i look at it is uh, acting from a place of um, inner poise and inner uh how would i put it um acting from a place of inner poise and and inner knowing and not acting from a place of trying to get one's own needs met or trying to build up a certain idea or, or, Mm -hmm. or sense of self through being kind, caring or giving. Um, So essentially this requires a person to learn to meditate until they are aware that they are not their mind, body, personality, thoughts, preferences, attachments, and aversions. And then when a situation arises, ask oneself, what is the appropriate thing to do here? And if the appropriate thing to do is to help someone, well, then you do it. Not because you're trying to be defined as a helpful person, but just because Uh it is kind of like the innate urge or the innate expression of this infinite consciousness of which we are a part. And that's a, that's a hard thing for many people to, to get to. So when we, when we, when we talk about selflessness, um, we also have to realize that um, it's selflessness is more so about acting from a place related to the greater good or the greater understanding or from the whole. However, the difficulty that the human mind has with that is that we've been trained to think that the way we do that is by completely giving up uh, 
completely given up any ideas of self-preservation or if someone needs money, we just give it to them freely or rather than pulling back and, and, and kind of contemplating, well, what is the right thing to do here? Is it right for me to bail this person out right now? Maybe it is. Or is it right to, to let them learn from whatever experience they're going through? You know, mm-hmm. so this idea of selflessness, um, I, uh, I think it's very subtle and, um, the more we know what we are beyond the mind, body, and personality, the more we recognize what it truly means to be selfless. So, right. Does this, uh, is there any way I, I can clarify that? Or where were you, where, where were you, when you thought of the words selflessness or being selfless, where were you taking it? Yeah. You know, I think that, well, first of all, I, I think what you're saying is, I, I, is also important because I I've read often that there's actually no such thing as altruism (laughs) and uh, you know, everyone's kind of doing something for, for gain. So perhaps on a more mundane level, just simply being truly selfless and trying to maybe find a way to achieve that. um, I think a follow-up question that I had, which I think goes, you know, dovetails very nicely from, from what you just said was that again, to, to bring up, you know, Mr. Davis again is I know that he also, he spoke and wrote often about what he would call purposeful evolutionary processes mm-hmm. and how awakening is beneficial to, for the total evolution of consciousness, like for everyone right. um, and not just having this sort of, um, I believe he would refer to it sometimes as almost like a selfish desire to awaken, um, but instead to have this selflessness to understand that a- awakening and, and kind of becoming God and self-realized is actually a beneficial on an evolutionary process mm-hmm. or on an evolutionary level, I suppose, of consciousness. Well, right. And it's funny you bring that up because I was actually just getting ready to write an article on that for the uh, oh. the, the Patreon community. Um, oh, cool. ma- mainly with the, with the idea, I haven't written it yet, so this will help me work it out in my head. Um, mm-hmm. Mainly the, <laughs> the idea is that, you know, when we meditate, we're not doing it, we're not doing it for ourselves. You know, in, in the beginning, we are. In the beginning, we might be depressed or anxious right. or think we want to know God. And sure, we have that idea that that's why we're doing it. But ultimately, we're all like little transistors or little, you know, fuses. I don't even know electronically what I would use there. But we're all like part of this. <laughs> we're all part of this computer. And so let's say that I'm, let's say I'm doing my best to meditate. And let's say I never experience what they describe as nirvikalpa samadhi. But I've done my mm-hmm. best. And I have experienced peace. And I have been able to rest in that stillness. But I didn't never had those blazing lights, or I never had all that fa- fantastic uh, descriptions that that many people uh, provide to get you to read their books. And um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but maybe I never had any of that, and I and and I pass. My body passes away. However, mm-hmm. that activity that I was doing, that I was engaged in, if I had, if I wasn't concerned about myself at all, and I was just doing it because it was the thing to do, it was the natural thing to do. That activity, sure, it's benefiting my own sense of individualized soul, but it's also helping all these other thousands and millions of people across the planet and whatever realm they're in uh, to recognize just a, a little more 
precisely, a, a little more subtly, what, what they really are. I mean, anyone who, who's been meditating over the last hundred years, um, we've seen, we can talk about meditation on podcasts. We can talk about meditation mm -hmm. just about anywhere. My, my parents went out to dinner um, for New Year's with some of my relatives and um, I was feeling kind of antisocial, so I didn't go. But um, uh, I, I heard the next day that one of my relatives was asking, hey, I heard Ryan's a meditation teacher and I, I, I need to learn more about this. So mm. my parents who probably don't even think about meditation are now having conversations about it. Why? Because more and more people are discovering the value of it and whether they're doing it well or not, hopefully they are. But th the more that happens, the more the whole becomes more easily able to appreciate, number one, what the yogic path is, even if it's skewed in the beginning, but they're beginning to appreciate it. And eventually that contributes to individuals' abilities to uh, process those higher states of consciousness because it's, it's moving in that direction. Whereas a hundred years ago, maybe let's say there were 200 people on the planet that, that really were, were doing it well. And this, these are just numbers I'm pulling out of nowhere. Um, sure. <laughs> and then... And then 50 years ago, now it's up to 400. And, and now it, it's so well known that maybe there's 10,000 people who are, are learning to start to meditate well and see the benefits of it. So it's mm -hmm. that, that idea, if we look at our meditation that way and we let go of our attachment to having certain experiences and focus more on, well, what are the mechanics of doing it well and how can I master that beyond my inspiration and actually do it consistently? Well, that's contributing to the whole. And you know, the less we think about what we're going to get out of it, the better. And so that, in a way, is, yeah. in a sense, selfless meditation. Right. Yes. And <clears throat> sometimes I think of it almost as, I don't know how, how you would think of this, but I'm a very visual uh, learner. So a lot of times I come up with visuals to, like, help me. Um, I think of it almost as, like, all of, all of humanity, but even just all of, this manifested sort of reality, if you will, pushing together this boulder up this hill almost. <laughs> right. And it's just, you know, the more people join that group, the quicker we're all going to be able to wake up or get that boulder up the hill versus maybe just like 10 people or 10 beings uh, trying to do that. So. Right. It's like we're an ant colony and we're trying to, we're trying to drag yeah. that grasshopper back to the yeah. nest. And the more, the more ants that chip in, the better. And some of those ants might not survive and some of those ants might not even get a, a taste of that grasshopper. But right. the fact that they, <laughs> they, were, they were doing their duty, well, then the whole benefits yeah. from it. So <laughs> yeah. that's a yeah. way to look yeah. at it, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Now I want to go watch a bug's life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, since, since, since we need to be you know, talking about uh, vegetarianism, well, then what I mean to say is the leaf cutter ants <laughs> were, were dragging back giant leaves. <laughs> <laughs> no grasshoppers were harmed in the making yeah. of this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even if they died of natural causes. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's super funny. So, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, uh, and, and again, I think that it definitely expands on the idea of selflessness too and, and what that can mean, um, even at a more esoteric level. Well, and if people have, even if people have difficulty with that, well, that's a clear sign that you've got some work to do. Mm. You know, if, if, if someone hears what we've just said, and like, well, you know, I want to have these special experiences, and I, I, I want all of this. 
well, mm-hmm. you know, how old are you? I mean, what's, what's, right. your, men, what's your mental age that, that, that you're feeling with this kind of work that you're going to, you by yourself are meant to, you know, capitalize on it and get something out of it for you. I mean, that's the whole mm-hmm. emphasis towards much of this work is that it's a mistaken sense of self. And so that is why, it, you know, it always makes me laugh when, when people write to me, and um, they say, Sri Yukteswar is, is my favorite in the guru lineage. I, I wish I could have studied, studied with Sri Yukteswar. And it makes mm. me laugh because I listen to them mm. talk and I'm like, yeah, you would last probably less than a day in Sri Yukteswar's <laughs> ashram because he, he, right. doesn't, he doesn't care about your personality. He doesn't care yeah. about making you feel good about yourself. He wants you to meditate well. And many people, they, they don't quite grasp that. And then they think, oh, well, this teacher is mean or uncaring or, or whatever it might be. When no, I mean, sure, there are probably teachers out there which are abusive and real jerks. But the ones that, that are, are essentially interested in, in your understanding of yoga, they're not going to cater to your personality. They don't care what you want as in, mm-hmm. they don't care what your personality wants. What they care about is that you are waking up and that you are getting clear insights and you are letting go of attachment to this little you that has all these preferences such that you can do right. your duty, you know? So anyway, I, yeah. I, I've been reading Shri Yukteswar's book, The Holy Science, again, and I've gotten a few more oh, yeah. emails from people saying, I wish I could have stayed with Shri Yukteswar. And every time I... <laughs> It makes me laugh. <laughs> do you? Do you really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would, they'd be kicked out of the anthill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So, okay. So my next question, this is going to be probably my most uh, metaphysical question. Um, okay. But I think it, I think it's rolling into into what we're just talking about. And you said, you know, hey, we're all kind of part of this computer and we're all really the same part of the same consciousness. And this is a this is a burning, <laughs> I would say my burning question of the conversation that okay. even as a child, I was always trying to wrap my head around and still uh, to this day it, feel like I'm very close to understanding it. But hasn't clicked yet. You know, that, that realization moment hasn't Mm -hmm. happened yet. So my question is, what is the relationship between people and perspectives? Like sometimes I get this weird sense that this entire bubble that we are apparently living in, is just a figment of my own imagination. <laughs> um, almost like my personal dream that, that we're in and perhaps even the, the players in this world or in this life that I'm in seemingly interacting with are maybe not even, you know, they seem to have their own personalities or whatnot, but maybe it's all just a, uh, again, maybe a figment of my own imagination. Um, And so I guess the question would just maybe be to understand a little bit better about the relationship between all of the little, I guess the the yogic literature would say the little jivas, the little little individualized units of soul consciousness. Um, 
are is there overlap? Are we all, uh, you know, we all have our own perspectives, but how how does it all mesh together? Um, right. Well, I suppose your your understanding would jive very well with many of the ancient seers ideas of what's really going on. Mm. And that, and that is that there is one consciousness and it is interacting with itself through all of these seemingly individualized perspectives. Right. So that is something that I think you will find. Um, hold on. There's a loud truck going, Oh, it's a motorcycle. Anyway, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it didn't come through very, very much. But, um, you know, many, many of these ancient seers agree with that idea. And I also, most of the time, get that idea, get that sense. Mm-hmm. The trouble, talking, the trouble that, that we have talking about this is that it's very easy for people to take it way too far in a way it's not intended right. to go. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> when we think about it, uh, we, we do have to keep in remember that the human mind can never comprehend what you're trying to comprehend. Mm-hmm. And that is why uh, through meditation, you learn to withdraw your awareness from your mind so that you actually can get the direct experience of what you're describing. And once you have that experience, again, this is the best words can, 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 you, can, right. can be right. used, um, is you'll come back and you'll say, oh, well, it's almost as if I am everyone and everything, mm-hmm. and I'm just kind of like flowing through each of these individual bodies. And then the reason it becomes difficult is because then it can be, well, why would someone do this horrible thing to someone else if we're all the same, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where we start going down this rabbit hole where the mind is going to create all these reasonings and, and rationalities and we're going to lose our understanding of what is, what is true about it. So when we're contemplating this, um, the only thing we can do really is to trust those teachers or those seers who have said, this is so. And then what we can do is we can meditate, all right, well, if I was not this body, mind, personality, how does this work? And in that case, then you will actually catch probably a glimpse or an experience. And it's, I mean, how can one even, how can one even imagine or describe processing, say, a thousand consciousnesses at once? Meaning if if right now, all of a sudden, you became aware of a thousand different personalities and perceptions, how would you be able to interact with the world? How would you be able to, would, would, what do you think your experience would even be like, right? Schizophrenic. Yeah, right, exactly. You, you, you can't, it's, it, it's, it's inconceivable. So that's, mm. why, that's why through the practice of meditation and yoga, we learn to go beyond the concepts to have the direct experience. Um, so that's, that's, that's how one has to realize that. And that there's nothing that can be uh, talked about. You know, I was talking with an individual who's going through a very difficult time. Mm-hmm. And um, she said something like, uh, how, could, how could God let this happen? And 
again, having gone through some difficult times and, and looking back on them, um, you know, we don't ever really know the real reasons why, cer- why certain things have to happen. Why does someone have to die? What is, why does a difficult thing happen to this person? Why does a good thing happen to that person? Why do we have to watch someone suffer? Why do we suffer? Well, we don't know what those experiences, how they're impacting those, those other perceptions or those other awarenesses around us. Maybe, uh, maybe a child loses their parent to a disease and that inspires them to go on a path of, of becoming some type of healer or, or doctor. And then they end up uh, being very beneficial in the lives of thousands of other people. You know, right. we don't know, we don't know why that, that person's parent had to die so young, but maybe it was for some reason for this child to go through that pain such that they could be of benefit to even more people. Now, these are things which we don't really there's no proof of, we can't, we can't even really talk about it in any sensical fashion. But again, it all comes down to this idea that based on what you're asking, if you have an idea or you have a realization that, that you feel you're kind of on the cusp of, well, that's, that's a good example of when you hold that general idea and you contemplate it and then you go into meditation and you let go of as much of your preconceptions of it as possible and see what the actual experience that comes to you is. But, but it requires that you have to let go of all of your preconceptions. And again, that is why we need that discipline early on in meditation, because if we can't let go of our preconceptions, there's absolutely no way we can understand these, these grander viewpoints, which is why when a mystic speaks or an ancient seer speaks or a master speaks, 98% of the world thinks they're crazy or doesn't understand what they're saying because they, (laughs) they they cannot grasp anything beyond what the mind is capable of. So part of meditation is learning to remain, sane while learning to let go of at the times that are appropriate your concepts definitions and and what your mind typically says the world is all about yes yeah yeah i think that's very true i mean even in my own meditative experiences i've had many moments where um well i won't say too much because i don't i don't think it's healthy to talk about one's meditation experiences, but it's almost as if um, I get to a certain point and instead of, uh, you know, I think just reality is very uh, um, fickle (laughs) and (laughs) you get to a point where you just feel like there's just the thinnest layer, the thinnest veil that can just be lifted at any moment. And that, ego that fear kind of steps in and is like whoa i don't know if i'm ready to lose that sense of individuality right um and i think that's where that whole concept of letting go comes in as well Uh, you know in in the in the highest sense of 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 the definition of it well again that that's the importance of early meditative training is that it's Mm -hmm. teaching you that it is safe to let go Right, right. And even when we think about the yamas and niyamas, okay, well, the yamas and niyamas say to be truthful at all times. Well, you have to go through the painful experience of being truthful at all times. And once you do that enough, eventually you recognize, hey, I'm still existing, even though I'm being in my truth. I'm not telling these little white lies or I'm not being inauthentic like I used to be, yet I'm still mm-hmm. in existence. Or the idea of contentment, practicing contentment. Um, if you really practice contentment, and what you learn is, hey, 
all these situations came and went and I practiced contentment and I didn't complain about it. And yet I'm still here and I still exist. So that's why the yamas and niyamas, not even talking about meditation yet, are so important mm-hmm. because they are, they, are the tr- they are the initial training ground that allows a person to see, wow, if I commit to one way of living, my world's not going to fall apart if I, if, um, if I break down. Um, I'm, I still exist. My, my ego doesn't need to play all these little games with myself. And, and then one learns that one is safe. One can still continue to move forward. And so with meditation, as you learn to internalize your awareness and let go of this problem, that problem, if you're able to say, all right, for an hour, I'm not even going to think about this relationship issue, or I'm not even going to think about the fact that, you know, I just overdrew my bank account or I've got this health issue. You, then you get through that hour and you recognize, wow, I went a whole hour without worrying about that at all. And I'm still here. You see, right. and, and then eventually right. one starts to recognize, well, wait a minute, maybe I can actually live my whole life not worrying about these things and it's still okay. Now, I'm not saying you don't take care of the things you need to. I'm just saying the worry, the attachment to the worry goes away. And then one yeah. learns that one is safe. So the same thing is true with meditation. When you get good at internalizing your awareness, then you see, oh, I've let go of all these other things. So maybe now it's safe to let go of this this thin veil, this small sense of self and see what happens, mm. you know? So it, it all builds upon itself. Yes. Yes. I think that's really important. And, and that's really beautiful to think too, of this idea of safety. And, and again, like we almost started out the conversation of talking about constructing the stability and safety so that you can let go. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, I think the ego's biggest fear is being, is non-existing <laughs> so <laughs> exactly that that final piece is difficult to work through but what's going to happen one way or the sense. other yes <laughs> the whole evolutionary it, process <laughs> yeah it's, it's either going to happen consciously or you're going to be driven into so many circumstances that you, you just suffer through it and you recognize it or you just end up losing your body and then you get it anyway so you know it happens one way or the other and, and part of our role with this meditation path it seems to mean mm-hmm. uh that we learn how to do it consciously so that we don't have to be forced into it <laughs> yes yeah, yes right and, and yeah because the universe if the universe if you don't if you don't feel them gently tapping you uh then they'll resort to pushing you down the stairs <laughs> <laughs> that seems that definitely seems to be the case sometimes <laughs> Well, we tried to get your attention by waving across the room, but you just weren't <laughs> looking. So, well, you know, it, it's like it's like um, uh, uh, this eighteen-year-old that that um, I've developed a relationship with. Um, mm. I'm trying to get her to to do some chores, and um, I started out with, "Hey, um, I will pay you to do these things happily, you know, <laughs> stuff around the right. house, like like a, and like an allowance." And then it went to all right, well, for some reason, kids these days don't seem to care much about money. So no. it moved to, uh, would you please just help to contribute, you know, just, just to be a part of the family and help out. Mm-hmm. And so far that's worked. And uh, when okay. it wasn't working, I said, you know, I really hope we don't have to take it to another level. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, so maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a, a natural structure of the universe as you're describing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, you know, people are resistant to <laughs> right. things. So, yeah. And I think that, you know, to, to just pick up on 
something you were starting to talk about a little bit where you're going to come to this realization one way or the other, and it might be by losing your body. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the questions that I had was, you know, this, this idea of, of actually contemplating death and the role that that can actually play on the spiritual path and how, you know, it's something in my life where actually some, it, and I don't mean this to be super dark and morose and all of that, but it's just a simple fact that, you know, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, you know, we're all going to die at some point. Right. And so contemplating that, you know, how, how do you think that that can, that that can be helpful, I guess. Well, you know, I wish I had contemplated it a lot more in early on in mm -hmm. my life um, because, you know, when, uh, when my wife Melissa died, like that was, yeah. that would have been, maybe, I don't know, you know, we can never say with uh, what, what, how things would be if things would have been different and so on. But um, right. you know, that was one of the things that was most impactful for my going back and, and digging deeply into the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras and, and recognizing that you know, nowhere in the Yoga Sutras or the Bhagavad Gita does it say, you know, you do this and your life's going to be perfect and you're not going to have to worry about anything. Mm -hmm. it, you know, there's this focus on again, non-attachment, and that uh, the yogi in, endures pleasure and pain while one seeks out knowledge. And so um, if one is able to contemplate death, it is my thought that then they're able to hopefully, eventually, if they do it profoundly enough, they see that, wait a minute, you know, everyone dies. I'm not really my body. Mm -hmm. This is going to pass. And if that was more present in our awareness, it seems like we would give a heck of a lot more attention to the profoundness of our, our meditation and our, our mm -hmm. yogic practice because, you know, you don't want to go through that kind of pain of, of discovering that the hard way, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and so if you're able to see it and it really drives you to question, well, what am I really? Uh, mm -hmm. I think it, it, it gives a little more life to the spiritual path and it gives a little more life in general to life. Um, yeah. You know, not having ever contemplated that stuff before. Well, now I can be in relationships with people and I can love them and I can appreciate them, but I don't look at them as any kind of source of ultimate fulfillment because I know right. that either I'm going to go or they're going to go or, or something's going to happen. But then that creates a greater, I think, love in the moment for what is really going on right now. And so I think the idea of contemplating death or loss or change, um, that can put things into perspective and it can put things in a perspe into perspective in a way that might bring uh, a greater sense of integrity to one's life or it might bring a greater sense of awareness and presence to every moment of every relationship one has. Um, so I think that it would be, I mean, well, you know this, in, in the, the second year of the uh, the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program, you know, I, I posted that video on, uh, what was mm -hmm. it, like dying well, I, I, I think. Right, um, yeah. And the, re the reason I did that was because, you know, when you, when you start contemplating people dying well, what you recognize is that those people who die well are practicing, consciously or not, uh, yogic philosophy. And if that's the case, then we could learn a lot from the death process and the idea of impermanence. And, you know, our, our culture, the way that we've, maybe not everyone, and I'm sure not everyone, but at least when I, what I have seen, um, there's often been this kind of glamorization of, of yoga and spirituality as though that that's like the key that's going to fix everything. 
And um, I think that's a real shame because if you think there's a key that's going to fix everything, well, then you're playing another game saying that this is the trick to make something permanent. And really the idea of yogic, uh, yogic processes are to see what you really are, the, the true you that is eternal and permanent, and, and to see that, that temporal or that fickleness of the, the ups and downs of the world, see that in, in perspective such that you don't get pulled into it and you don't believe that that is the only thing. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, and I was just, you know, digesting that. I think that's really important. Um, yeah, the impermanence of life is, it's... Right, you make peace with yeah. that. You mm-hmm. make peace with that and you're probably good. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- think about it. Imagine, imagine if people, imagine if people were, lived so close to nature where they saw death and they saw decay and they saw the seasons changing. They recognized that, you know, one year crops are going to be good or one year you know, game is going to be good. One year it's not. And, you know, imagine someone who's so in tune with it and they're not afraid of it. They're not fighting it. They're not saying, geez, I wish yeah. it wasn't this way. If they were just... Yeah embracing of the fact that this is the experience one has when one is in the body. And then when death would come, if they had been embracing that all their life, then likely, I don't know yet, but likely then they would say, all right, well, this is just part of the process and and what comes next comes next. So if people were able to to grasp that and really get behind that rather than chasing all these other things, um, you know, that, that would bring just by itself, I think a greater sense of peace and connection and that sense of yoga and oneness that that we're kind of aiming for with all these meditations and philosophies and processes and so on. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, I know that sometimes when I contemplate the death or just the ending of this realm of consciousness, you know, Again, this is the more of a feeling, more of a, a theory. We probably don't need to go too far into it, but it's just I sometimes have this overwhelming feeling or sensation that it's already happened. You know, mm-hmm. it's already it's so impermanent that it's just fleeting. It's just like sand. Like and there's nothing to be fearful of because it's basically it's all happening at once, kind of. Uh, right. And, so, but that actually leads, it doesn't make me feel sad or anything. It makes me feel alive and happy and full um, to think of, just to think of that. And, right. You know. Yeah. And, and, and you can really only do that when you've let go of the definitions of the mind. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say let go of the definitions of the mind, I don't mean stop thinking because you're going to need to think mm-hmm. every now and then. I just mean when you stop giving the ideas of the mind so much power. You know, this person should be healthy. This should be this way. This political situation should be like that. This shouldn't right. happen. You know, we should be able to maintain the sense of comfort indefinitely. You know, those kinds of, those kinds of things, and and they're not they're not based on fact. I mean, I was just recently reading a book on sort of the banking. I wasn't reading a book on the banking system. I was reading a book on sort of the state of humanity, and they were talking mm-hmm. about how. Um, in with the banking system, that all that is based on imagination the imagination that the future will be better than it is right now. That's why banks can loan you money they don't have. Whereas, mm. let's just say a thousand years ago, that's not how it worked. 
you know, you, you only could get something if you went and took it from someone else. So there was a limited, <laughs> right. there, there, there wasn't unlimited credit available to everyone. And, and that's a, that's a radically different way of looking at the world. And I think imagination is very useful and I'm very happy with our, our, the way our economy is allowing people to live the way they are at this point in time compared to a thousand years ago. Um, But ultimately we always do need to come back to that idea of reality of, of, of impermanence. And, you know, the Buddha talked about that and it's, it's all over the place in the the Gita and the yoga sutras. It's just that Mm. it doesn't sell a lot of books for someone, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to to talk about how impermanent and fleeting the world. I'm I'm sure there are probably very many best-selling Buddhist writers and those sorts of things. But in general, um, you know, I can remember teaching classes on on Kriya Yoga and and, and bringing up these ideas and the classes are packed. And then I start getting into the the, the deeper aspects of non-attachment and people get a little squirmy <laughs> and then there's maybe out. yeah and then there's maybe like two or three people left that are really intent on on meditating well and, and, and really understanding what this non-attachment thing is <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. well, but it could also be that you know i have poor charisma after 24 hours so you know that's uh, that's a possibility too <laughs> <laughs> I would not describe you as someone with poor charisma. So I, <laughs> well, you know, when, when, when you, when you come, when you come to the retreats, I mean, you, you've driven a, a long way, so you can't really get away. You, you kind of got to sit it out. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true. Yes. Yeah, I just am very good at falling asleep with my eyes open. <laughs> yeah. Your, your plane ticket, you know, it's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. so funny. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So. I have one more question and then I have two sort of very light questions that I think we, we can kind of end with. So, um, so I think this is interesting to ask you as well, knowing that for a long time you actually made your career out of uh, astrology and, you know, I, there are so this is this is what does sell well, right? These do mm. sell a lot of books. Understanding I, I was your a very successful. Purpose. Yes, I was a very successful yeah. astrologer. <laughs> yes, you were. Yes, and, and I think this idea of you know, it, what is your soul's true purpose in life? Like, what is your true purpose? And I was just wondering if you could comment on that of you know, do you think that there's actually a true role or purpose that each individual is here to fulfill or, you know, kind of play out? Or is it really just a little bit overhyped? And at the end of the day, it's just do your thing. And and the ultimate purpose is just to sort of make your way back to God, essentially, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And that's, that's very, there's a lot of levels to that question. Um, and it was, it, it was part of the reason why I, I eventually got out of astrology uh, the way I did. Right. Um, because I loved astrology. I thought it was a beautiful science. I still do. I think it's very helpful yeah. in, in certain ways. And it, it's, it's, it's got a lot of power behind it. Yet what I found was that people kept asking me this question about purpose and it's because they yeah. watch too much TV because, <laughs> because my response would always be, well, your purpose is to do what you're doing. Mm. And that's not a good enough answer. 
because right. people don't think that they're fulfilling their purpose unless they're impacting a large number of people, unless they're famous, unless they have everything that they want. I mean, that's a, that's a large part of uh, what people seem to be wanting me to tell them when it came to astrology. And, um, yeah. and again, my experience going through losing a spouse and a few other situations and learning to appreciate yeah. life in a, in, a, in a different way, you know, it came down to the idea that I, I would see many of my astrologer friends go through difficult times. I mean, serious stuff like death and illness and, and really heavy things that people go through. And right. rather than actually being in that experience, they would run to their computer or run to their charts and say, well, let's look at the transits that are you know, causing that. And I said, you know what, you're completely missing life because, yeah. you know, your, your sister just lost her baby. Why don't you go cry with your sister and let that be your purpose for now? Don't go run mm. to your charts to make yourself, you know, feel better about, oh, well, it was just this transit making it happen. So I, I became a little um, kind of disgusted with how I, how I saw people missing their actual life because what they were, what, what they, what they were ignoring were what they wanted to ignore. It seemed to me were the bad parts of their life by explaining it away through something like astrology. Um, so that being said, um, I, I had remembered, I don't remember if this was a quote I read in one of Mr. Davis's books or um, if I heard him say it one time, but he said Yogananda had mentioned that, the purpose of life is much different than what everyone thinks it is. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me for a while. And then again, the more I read the Gita, the more I read the Yoga Sutras, the more I recognized. And someone recently asked me, well, what is, um, what is, what is the yogic definition of success? And I recognized the, 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 the yogic definition of a successful life is realizing what you are. Yes. It has absolutely nothing to do with how famous you were, how much money you had. Did you have the perfect relationship? Did you get through life with zero diseases? Um, did you help millions of people? That is not the definition of a yogic successful life. The definition is, are you able to abide as the self? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's one of the reasons I, I pulled very quickly away from uh, astrology because right before the six weeks before Mr. Davis passed, I visited with him. And for years, I had said to him, you know, I I think I want to give my full time attention to teaching Kriya Yoga. And he would always say to me, well, you know, you still need to be able to pay your mortgage, and you're not going to be able to do that teaching meditation, (laughs) because it's not that lucrative of a of a business um mm. and and he looked at me and he said and you're not very good at cleaning yourself up and playing the game and <laughs> <laughs> playing the game um mm. so he said so you know keep doing your astrology as your your service and your duty and to be able to pay your bills and then teach kriya yoga to the people that you're you're able to but then that six weeks before he passed i had no idea he was going to go but um, I had moved back to West Virginia. My expenses were a little lower. So I said, you know, this is the time. I just turned, yeah. I just, it was uh, a few months before I turned 40. And um, he just looked at me and said, sounds like a good idea to me. So, <laughs> so then I, I, that's when I decided, okay, now it's time to take all, all these kind of ideas and thoughts that I had had and, and really put it towards helping people see and engage their life with as little fantasy as possible and to do my best to share the yogic purpose of life, which is to know what you are, 
to know what you yeah. are when your spouse is dying, to know what you are when you've got the business that you want, to know what you are when your children are getting married, to know what you are when you've just had a, a major setback, to know what you are at all times, if that can be maintained, because life is always going to rise and fall. I've met many people who are extremely wealthy and successful and they were on the spiritual path and their wealth and their success did not contribute in any way, shape, or form to their sense of happiness. It prevented many problems that they might have otherwise yeah. had if they were in poverty, but they were no more enlightened than someone who was in poverty and was actually doing the work. So right. that's when I started to recognize that the influence, the, or the, not the influence, the emphasis needs to be on um, knowing what you are so you can be present in the moment, doing your purpose, whatever that is, whether that's you know, us just sitting here now having a conversation, that's going to impact some people, maybe, who knows, but I'm, I'm enjoying mm -hmm. it. Um, whether yeah. it's being at home, cooking chicken soup for your daughter who needs it, that's a, that's a, that's a perfectly good purpose to have, whether it's, you know, mowing grass, uh, whether it's uh, doing business on the stock exchange, if that is your duty, and that is what, that's, that's what arises in your experience to do, that is your uh, jiva purpose. That is your individual purpose as this greater whole so that uh, the, the wheel keeps turning. You know, in the Bhagavad Gita, um, Krishna says that the one who, who, does not, who does not do one's work freely, uh, this is a paraphrase, who does not do one's right. work freely to keep this, this world sustained is essentially like a thief uh, because they're not mm. participating. They're not playing their part. They're not playing their role. And yeah. I got to say, I, I completely forget what the original question was. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, no, actually you're answering it. I mean, I, I was just asking, you know, about your perspective on, is there this soul purpose or, you know, divine role that everyone's truly meant to fulfill? Because I think there's so much emphasis on that in our culture and our society that I think a lot of people lose themselves just in the quest for finding this perfect, uh, you know, Right, exactly. Half, I suppose. Mm -hmm. so, so, so yes, I would say that the the that yes, there is a purpose, but it may be that you've done your best in life, and, and yet you still suffer like a dog. That might be your purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, it may mm -hmm. be that you, you you've you're just going through the motions, doing what you need to do, uh, and and that is your purpose. Not everyone can have these profound purposes. It may be that. Uh, you know, you have one bad relationship after another. And it may be that the point of that, the purpose of that is such that you recognize that you are not to define yourself by your relationships. You know, mm -hmm. people, people think right. well, I'm failing because I'm not finding the one. Well, maybe you're failing because you're not recognizing that these are prime lessons or prime examples. I don't like the idea of lessons, but prime examples, yeah. opportunities such that one can see, hey, maybe, maybe I exist or maybe the real me has abs doesn't need to be defined by whether I'm with the one or not. Can you imagine that? I mean, try imagine right. imagine if someone had that 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 kind of mentality, and you go tell them that. It, right. It's it's it, you got to be prepared for it. And again, just like we were talking about with with previous experiences, you don't want to be forced into situations where you recognize that. So if we mm -hmm. learn to practice non-attachment, contentment, and the yamas and niyamas ahead of time, well, then essentially we're going to be set up just right to, uh, to, to navigate whatever this purpose is that we have, however grand or however mundane it, it might seem to our minds. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. Um, I recall uh, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda said, uh, at one point, you know, obviously not to me, but I think I heard it somewhere. Or I read it somewhere. He said, uh, 
don't regret what you lack or the kind of work that you do. Be satisfied and find God. Mm-hmm. So I right. think it's, you know, it's like, don't, don't worry about it so much. Just focus on maybe more of your macro purpose right. exactly. <laughs> as, a, as, as a jiva or whatnot. And that is why yeah. we're here. And that's why we're having this conversation because it's, you know, that's, that's more of a, that, that is the most important thing because if you get yeah. that, all this other stuff, uh, it's not, it's not going to bother you chronically as much, maybe acutely every now and then, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you'll be able, I, the ideal is that we're able to then see it in perspective and we make it to the end uh, with maybe a little bit of a smile. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Love it. Okay, so I've just got my two sort of freebie questions, you know, okay. here, here at the end, and then I think we'll I'll probably around that hour mark anyway. So, yeah. Um, so, what? It's almost like a two-part question. So, what is the biggest mistake you see people making on the spiritual path or on the kriya path? And then, what is the biggest piece of advice you'd have for someone on this path? <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's a. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a bigger that feels like a harder question than all the others that you've just asked oh. <laughs> that's um, awesome. save the best for last <laughs> yeah well let me think about that um mm-hmm. and, and the reason that's hard to answer is because everyone is really kind of different in, in where they are um mm-hmm. Some people are way too caught up in their, their social engagements. Some people yeah. uh, don't really care about that at all. The, the thing that I would say, well, actually, ask the question one more time. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest mistake you see people making on you know, this path? And then maybe what's the biggest piece of advice you'd have for someone on this path? Okay. All right. Well, I have the idea about the mistake. I don't think the advice is going to make much of a difference, but I'll try. <laughs> um, <laughs> From my life experience with this work um, and uh, what I've seen interact with many people and just kind of watching people live their lives in general, um, I really think the biggest mistake people make on this path is expecting something in this world to satisfy them. Mm -hmm. I I think that's the biggest issue that people have. And even when people turn to spirituality, they are then just doing the same thing where they're expecting a spiritual philosophy or idea to, to, to satisfy them completely. So it boils down to the idea of they're looking for something to attach themselves to that will finally give them peace. When really the ultimate peace seems to come from not being attached to anything at all. And those people who, who kind of get a sense of that, who do well with it, sometimes they take it a little too far and then they, they act, they don't actually engage in the world. So the, the key is to engage in the world as if it matters. <laughs> right, right. <clears throat> so yeah. that's, that's, that's one of the things I think that if more people would really stop and contemplate that and, and think about how that can be done, recognizing that that is not an easy thing. It's not something you're going to go to a retreat for a week and get it by the time you're done. This is something that you, you mull over a lot. You contemplate a lot and you test out and you explore how it can be done until one gets the hang of it. 
Um, So the biggest, the biggest issue I see is thinking that one is going to find happiness through something. And a thing can be even an idea or a person or a guru or things of that nature. And the solution to it is to actually do the work that is described by masters or teachers or, or, or in spiritual texts, such as uh, doing the work of actually trying to practice contentment in all circumstances. Or when it comes to meditation, rather than sitting down and being like, well, gee, this is going to be relaxing. Yeah, sure, it's going to be relaxing, but that's not why you're doing it. Uh, learning to sit down and say, all right, this is a skill like anything else. How can I sit down and focus on these meditation techniques and then in time kind of slide into or remain alert and aware while being completely free, completely internalized? Really get in there and do the work to figure out how it happens, just like riding a bike, figuring out how to ride that bike. So really it boils down to the sense of um, recognizing what is real, what is permanent, what is impermanent, what is real, what is the unreal. That is the biggest issue. Because if you, mm-hmm. if you, if you deep down inside knew that nothing in this world is going to satisfy you, you're really not necessarily going to get long-term bent out of shape about many things. You see what I'm yeah. saying? Um, yeah. When, when right. a problem when a problem arises, sure, maybe that's going to frustrate you, and you have to deal with it. And if it's a long term problem, yes, that might be longer. But um, most of the time, that's why we learn to practice contentment, so we don't have to get to that point, and we can we can learn to roll with life as as it happens. And and everyone's going to be different. Like for some people, the idea of death might be the worst thing in the world, you know. Mm-hmm. So they might have to find ways to come to terms with that. For other people, it might be being homeless and having zero money, or it might be, as we talked about, not having the perfect relationship. So we all have, we all have these areas where we have a fantasy about, such as if this were right, then everything else would be good. And if we can learn to address those fantasies head on and see what we really are beyond all those fantasies, that, that's what all, that's what I think all, all spirituality eventually points to. And that's why I think that is the, the ultimate aim and goal of human life, because everything that we experience is put here for us, it seems to me at least, is put here for us to provide that opportunity. You know, yeah. like I don't, yeah. I don't have a crazy attachment to define myself through my children, I don't have any children, but through children. And mm-hmm. so that, that issue doesn't come up for me. You know, but there are other people that are, that are so engrossed and define themselves through their children that their children cause one problem after another, and they wonder why that's the case. Well, it's a perfect opportunity there to learn what is the reality of how, who, how are you defining yourself, through your actual innate, infinite spirit, or through a thing or a body which came into being and which will eventually go away. You know, th- that's where our suffering comes into play. So the goal, obviously, yeah. is, is to move beyond this sort of petty suffering that most humans seem to experience. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I think that's, that's wonderful. So, I mean, basically you'd say, you know, that some of the biggest mistakes are thinking there's almost like a silver bullet for happiness or for fulfillment. And then maybe identifying a little bit, being overly identified with the unreal uh, as opposed to, and getting kind of caught up in in trivial drama versus focusing on, reality uh, in the truest sense 
Right, exactly. In the in the unchangeable sense, you know. And, yeah, right. and we have we, we have that with, with meditators and Kriya practitioners all over the place. You know, people write to me, Oh, well, do you teach this Kriya? Do you teach this meditation mm. technique? I, I've been doing this for ten years. Now I need a better technique. Well, again, what are they doing? They're just looking for that next silver bullet. And there are plenty of people that will mm. sell books with those silver bullets when really the whole yeah. the whole the whole path is this is it's living, it's your life. Your life is your path. And, and are you, how well are you living your, again, how well are you living your immortal life or your eternal life? And that's all, that, that can be structured very well by following yogic principles and procedures. But again, remembering that that yogic structure is there to help you process higher consciousness. It's not there for its own sake. It's there for, in the same way that um, good dirt and, and, and sunlight and, and fresh water helps your roses to grow. That's, it's the rose blooming that, that's the important part. Uh, how it happens, that's the support to it. And um, there's, yeah. no, there's no mm-hmm. silver bullet. It's not, it's not the water. It's not the dirt. It's not the sunshine. It's the combination of all the things that make it work. And that's life. 100%, yes. And that <laughs> might be why, <laughs> and that might be why some texts, uh, specifically I'm, I'm thinking of Ashtavakra Gita says, almost considers meditation to be a trap. Because it's well, we, we, we can talk about that. We can, we can talk about that because I know John mentioned that to me a few times, and I've read multiple versions of Ashtavakar Gita since then. And mm-hmm. uh, if you read the paragraphs before it starts to talk about those things, you will see mm-hmm. that it's also saying it has its place until it doesn't. It's saying that right. you, you learn to meditate such that you can abide in that state. But once you are abiding in that state, you don't keep cranking through your Kriya Pranayamas. You don't keep doing your exactly. mantra. So exactly. yeah, that, that, that's a good point. You brought that up because I've been thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking that. Yeah, exactly. 100%. <laughs> right. And then do you have a, a, a piece of advice? Or is it sort of the culmination of everything we just talked about? I believe, I believe it's the culmination because there's no, yeah. there's no one piece of advice that's going to be useful for, for all people. Yeah. But you can yeah. tell. I mean, ultimately, a person can tell what work they need to do essentially by paying attention to what bothers them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or, 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 or where they think that if they just had this one thing that then everything would be okay. That is right. the attachment. That, that is the immediate response to what am I attached to and what is the work I need to do and how on earth could I exist in a contented fashion if I didn't have this? And if, if, if one can contemplate that and get to that, um, then they're really going to be hitting that, that deeper level of the work from my perspective um, uh, yeah. a, l- a little harder than most. Right. Yeah, I love that. That's that's wonderful advice. Well, this has been, for lack of a better term, enlightening conversation. <laughs> well, <laughs> I really appreciate you answering these questions. Um, that's pretty much all that I had. Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on out and, and have this chat with me, as you know. Uh, well, maybe not. I don't know if you know, because maybe you didn't get the email because it didn't seem like many people did. I, I, in, in, in the year two of, of the Kriya Yoga Apprenticeship Program, I essentially said to people, hey, if you would like to be on the podcast and, and, and interview me about questions that you have, please do so. <laughs> no one responded. <laughs> yeah. It's so intimidating. <laughs> well, you know, I thought maybe someone would have, uh, you know, public speaking, uh, public speaking capacity and 
you do, so that's why I picked on you, and I guess you agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan bullied me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yes, but anyway, well, thank you, thank you for taking the time to be here, and um, uh, just for people to to know how to how to how to find you as well. You know, we've done a podcast before on my other podcast, and you've yeah. got the website instinctualwellbeing.com, right? Yes, yes, I still maintain that website, and. Um, yeah, the previous podcast that we did, uh, that would be kind of a fun listen probably. Um, yeah. So yeah, and, thank you. And I do refer people to you every now and then. And, and by refer, what I mean is, you know, Mitch has an interest in, uh, uh, good dietary practices for, to, mm. to help people be as healthy as possible. So occasionally when someone yeah. asks me about that, I tend to, to, to point them in, in Mitch's direction. So I'll go ahead and I'll put your, your website down on the, uh, the notes section here too, so people can find you if, if they need anything. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you for being here today and we'll be in touch. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, take care. This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.